First Chronicles chapter 10. As I mentioned last week, we've cleared the stretch of a lot, a lot of names. We still have names in this book. We're going to get more names. So it's like, a, you know, it's like a good road trip. We get lots of names. But as we're seeing, we're getting lots of application. As we're getting these names, the Lord is speaking to us and showing us really neat things. And I've been enjoying it. I hope you have as well. So as we come to chapter 10, last week, we really had the Levites. That was a big part of the focus. And we talked about them on topically on Saturday. But the back part of the previous chapter had us going back to the tribe of Benjamin and those descendants of Saul. Because, of course, when the captives came back from captivity, we know that a number of them would have been from the tribe of Benjamin. So the tribe of Benjamin gets a little more attention in the chronicle element. So chapter 10, we get a little bit of King Saul. We get the summary of his life. And then we move on to King David tonight. So that's what we're going to get, 10 and 11, as we go through this book verse by verse. Picking up in verse 1, chapter 10. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword, and he fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all of his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods, and they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the Valiant men then arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, also because he consulted a medium, that is, a sorceress for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he, that is God, struck him down. He killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse." And so here we're reminded of the life of Saul. We studied Saul quite, I mean, we've clearly been going through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel before we got the kings. And we saw the story of Saul and the tragedy of his whole story earlier on, not that long ago in our past. And here we are reminded of it again tonight with a whole chapter on his life. There's a sequence of words that are just so hard to read, but they're worth reading because we want to be warned by them. The Bible, the word of God is to uh, reprove us and correct us and instruct us and really as a warning in many cases and so we we just have to take a moment to look at Saul's summary of his life and first of all this summary in Chronicles is quite different than Samuel Samuel has all kinds of details and you know chasing David around the wilderness whole chapter with the witch at Endor and all these things this this is like a press release this is like a press release that went out here's the press release the official storyline released from the government on the end of Saul this is who he is, this is how it went, this is how it affected. It's like a press release. So this is Saul's unfortunate press release at the end of his life. The first thing we see is the men of Israel fled. 
So his failure became their failure. His three sons died with him on the same day. Of all the tragedies you can endure in your human experience, you parents would know that that would have to just be the worst, to step into eternity with your children, not from some tragedy that you had no control over, but a tragedy that you brought upon your family because of your unfaithfulness and rebellion to the Lord. So they died with him. Then we see, as news spread that they had died, that the other Israelites, again, they fled. And actually, they even fled their city. So it cost people economically. It cost them their security. People fled their homes. Can you imagine having to flee your home from fear of harm of adversaries? That would just be the worst. I mean, again, this happened all over World War I, World War II, and in human history this happens. But I just can't even imagine the sheer terror of being coming a refugee, especially again with Europe and World War I, World War II, of all the displacements of people all over, especially World War I, the Great War, all over Africa, the colonies and all these things. I just can't even imagine what it would be like to like literally have a home, own your home, it's your place of security. Maybe you love the Lord and it's where you were, and then you just got to go because your leadership failed and now you're being overrun. That would just be such a horrific experience and the human experience, and that's what happened. Again, the chain reaction of the other people being affected by Saul's failure and how far-reaching it was to affect the citizens of Israel. Then they find his body, they behead him, they you know take his head as a trophy, and they took his armor. That gets my attention, because the last time we saw his armor, he's trying to put it on David in chapter 17 to fight Goliath. It's good to know, you know, when you're a man of faith like David, even as a teenager, you know, like, no, that's not my armor. That's, that's your deal. That's, my, my deal is a, a sling and, and five stones. That's your deal. My, that's your deal with you, your pride, your flesh, your unbelief, your arrogance, your anger, your jealousy, all the negative emotions of the human experience. That's you. My armor is faith, confidence in the Lord, confidence in my calling. He's my shepherd. I'm a shepherd. And I go out, you know, I go out in the name of the Lord in faith. What a contrast. David and his five stones versus Saul and his armor. And the end of David's five stones is the next chapter tonight. But the end of Saul and his armor is on display with the enemies of the Lord in their temples of false gods. Sobering, very sobering. Now, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, that's the east side of the Jordan River. So they're from those two and a half tribes that we studied recently and so they came, they're right there with Manasseh and Gad on the north, kind of near Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, but on the other side, they came across, got the bodies. Man, they risked their lives. They get credit for doing something valiant here in this chapter. But then again, we're told back to Saul that he died for his unfaithfulness. His unfaithfulness. And again, as far as of Jesus Christ, if you are that, and you're seeking to be a disciple of Christ and go forward, we know that Ideally, what we want to hear when we step into eternity is the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So this would be the exact opposite. Like when you think about what you're living your life for, when you think about what's motivating you and driving you on Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning, it's to be like, you know, to all things is unto the Lord, to bring glory to the Lord, bring your best effort for the Lord, have vision with the Lord, and to be ready for the day of the Lord. And to be found faithful on the day of the Lord. This is just the worst, his unfaithfulness which he committed against the Lord. To whom much is given, much is required. And he was the first king of Israel about 1100 B.C., the very first king after the book of Judges. They demanded a king. God tried to talk him out of it. They wouldn't receive it. The people, he became their king. He was tall. He was handsome. He looked like the king. 
but he didn't have a heart for God. When you really summarize Saul's life, I think the number one thing that stands out to me is he never accepted responsibility for his person or his actions. And there is a lesson for us. He never accepted responsibility for his person or his actions. He's also a classic example of the compound effect of bad choices just continually going down a road of wrong directions deeper and deeper into a spiral. His whole life for us in Samuel is just one bad decision after another bad decision from the day of his coronation all the way through. He never accepted responsibility from his calling, his faith, or what was entrusted to him. He always blamed someone else. He blamed the people. He blamed David. He threw his spear. He yelled at his son. He took credit for what his son did. He's that kind of person. He took credit for what his son did and claimed it for his victory. He was rash. But in the end, he never accepted responsibility for his actions. If you're to summarize his life and look at everything, the one thing you'll see is never once does he say truly, he says he's guilty, but even so, he doesn't ever turn from it. He never truly accepted responsibility for his life. He always had an excuse, and he never accepted responsibility. And if there's one thing we can learn from this man that the mark of maturity of any human being is when they accept responsibility completely and totally for who they are and the circumstances of their life. You are today, I am today, the result of our choices that we've made our entire life. And whoever we are, when we looked in the mirror this morning, we are who we are, where we are, how we are, because of the choices we've made in our life. And it's not about how, where we came from, it's about where we're going. And where we're going is reflective of our choices. So make good choices body of Christ. Accept responsibility for who we are in Christ, who, what he, who he is, what he's done, he wants to do in our life. Believe it, receive it, accept responsibility for his con or our life, and go forward with it. And by the way, when we accept responsibility for our life, our actions, our words, reactions, responses, we're free from bitterness, we're free from malice, and we just go forward always with the Lord. It's always onward, it's always forward, onward, and upward when we're accepting responsibility for ourselves. For everything. Just no excuses to yourself in the mirror or the people around you. Just own it and grow from it. And that's how we can be faithful. Because with David, and we'll get to him in a second, whenever David was confronted with his failures, what do we see with him? He always owned it and accepted it and never put it on anyone else. In fact, he begged it would be on him instead of them with the census. So a good word. In the business world, they'll tell you right away, the mark of a great employee is someone who doesn't make excuses and accepts responsibility for everything that is who they are and where they're going. We are the victors in Christ, and everything's forward, onward, upward. But when we make excuses and don't own it, we make ourselves the victim. Were the victim of what someone else did or some circumstance or this thing or that thing. I'll never forget being in that meeting with Pastor Chuck and the pastors that first year at Calvary Coast of Mesa. And he was planning that family camp. And I was the new hotshot guy. You know, I got Thursday night. They gave me the sanctuary. I had Jeremy Camp, Scott, and Phil Wickham and all these people. And Chuck asked, simply asked, who will be the pastors at family camp? 
and the old veterans, they knew, like Terry Reynolds and Dave Manny, they're like, I'll do that. And Chuck was very happy because he was happy because it's Jerusalem, it's the local church, and, and I'm out here doing this and that with these bands. And, and I said, Chuck, I would do it, but I can't because of this. And you know what he did? He went like this. Pastor Chuck gave me that. I mean, and not just give it to me, but publicly in front of all the other pastors. I can't tell you how much fun those guys had with me after that. <laughs> you, when you walk out of the big meeting with the boss, like, oh, <laughs> oh, Mr. Hotshot got it, didn't he, from the, from the king himself, you know? Now, he did this. When I gave an excuse to Pastor Chuck why I couldn't do family camp, he went like this. And I basically meant shut up. And that's all I could do. <laughs> the next year I volunteered. I waited a whole year for the rematch with that one. I'll do it. And then we all got the flu and I never did another one. But still, <laughs> I knew don't ever make excuses with Pastor Chuck Smith. Yes is yes, no is no. Own it and that's it, period. It's a good word for practical living for all of us here tonight in Jesus' name. Now we go forward in chapter 11 and we move on from the man with excuses and bad choices to the man that was hardly perfect, but just, man, he just flourished. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and for your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. I've mentioned and compared First Chronicles to the Gospel of Mark a few times because it's, it's always like the shorter version, just the facts. It's, it doesn't, it's not the, the large flowery stories like the Gospel of John or sometimes in Matthew. It's just facts, 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 correct information to know. And this is a summary of things that had, again, greater detail in the, the Samuel, the book of Samuel, where David became king. And we know that David was a king for seven years in Hebron over just the tribe of Judah with his own tribe that he was from. So in Chronicles, it just goes straight to the unified kingdom with David. Because again, he had the warm-up for seven years with just Judah. But this is when he's king over everybody. And we mentioned this when we were back in Samuel, that the people recognized, they knew all along what was intended by the Lord. They knew because Samuel was the greatest prophet of all time, and Samuel had, in a previous decade, anointed David to be the king of Israel. They all knew David was the king. They all knew David defeated Goliath. They all knew that when Israel was having victory against the Philistines for that season with David as the, the main commander, they were extremely successful. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And we, we know that, and we see that in the story, in the totality of the word of God. And so now they come to him and said, they quote what God said about David, that he would lead them, that God said, you will shepherd my people and rule over them. And in many ways, David is a type of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus took the title of David, son of David, and we know that so many things are foreshadowed and promised through David or type, types through David looking to Jesus. And if we look at Psalm 78, I want to read this passage to you about David this, this psalmist re talking about David becoming the king, but also being a shepherd, where it said this, where this is in Psalm 78. It says in verse 67, Moreover, the Lord rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. 
And he built this sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he had established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel's inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by his skillful hand. So I like this because this is a spirit-led summary of David's preparation before his ordination, which we just read of. We know that David was a shepherd. We know that when he went to fight Goliath and he said to Saul, uh, the Lord delivered me from the hand of the bear. He delivered me from the hand of the lion. When I was taking care of my father's flocks, he'll most surely deliver me from this Philistine giant, which was all true. We know that as he was a shepherd for his dad in obscurity, that God was preparing him for prominence. We know that he did the little things faithfully as unto the Lord when no one was watching that prepared him to do big things faithfully before the Lord and even fail big before humanity in a larger scale. That God had him in a teenager set apart and was working in him to prepare him for everything that was in front of him. And then, of course, when Saul was persecuting him, like in his 20s up until his early 30s, even so, in all that account, God was preparing him. But in all of his preparing him, he wasn't preparing to be a king like Saul who ruled over people, throwing a javelin and these things like this and blaming other people and being moved from insecurity and jealousy and lack of faith. He was preparing him to be a broken man, a teachable man, a godly man who would be led by the Lord and could lead for the Lord. Because, of course, we know that David wrote Psalm 23 where he said, the Lord is my shepherd. So David understood that he was like a... You know, he's looking at the sheep, taking care of sheep like shepherds do, and he realizes, this is me with the Lord. And as he delivered his own flock, his father's flock, from the bear and the lion, and he's like, well, that's what the Lord will do for me. That's what the Lord does. And so he wrote that beautiful psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And then here in the text I just read from Psalm 78, it says that God chose him, that God took him, his servant, and he taught him how to, she- how to shepherd the people of Israel by shepherding his father's flock. There's always lessons to be learned at every level of life. Always lessons. There's a lesson in everything. Every setback or obstacle is a lesson of opportunity to grow and go forward with the Lord. And really, the highest objective in growing in the Lord is to keep learning from every lesson and experience that life throws at us. To keep going from glory to glory and growing in maturity in the circumstances and situations that arise. To realize, hey, this is something the Lord's allowed and this is what he has for me. You wonder if David in his house working with his brothers, his big brothers, because the big brothers definitely thought they were capable of being kings. And David, to his credit, forgave his big brother for hassling him and let his big brother be an official in his government, a high-placing official, later on when David was a king. But if you wonder if you ever thought, like, gosh, I should be something more than just taking care of the sheep for my dad. But whatever he thought as a teenager, he was faithful in it. And God had his hand upon him in it. And that's what we want to remember in our own lives, that to be faithful in what God has for us and to learn the lessons of it because that's how we go from glory to glory. And as I've been saying, particularly last week's topical message on Saturday, everything in time is to prepare us for eternal glory. So there's a lesson in everything that we experience, good, bad, and ugly in the human experience. There's a lesson with the Lord to, to teach us the heart for the Lord. And David learned those lessons to be a shepherd for the Lord. 
So when he was over people, he didn't see him as he didn't see himself as the one who abused the flock or lorded over the flock, but he was there to lead the flock because he was a sheep and led by the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, and he's made me the shepherd of God's people. In fact, he referred to him as God's people as well. David was well prepared by the Lord in the quiet place for the prominent place of what God had for him, and he learned to be a servant leader and to just lead by example. And of course, we know in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself then takes that thought process forward where he says he's the good shepherd, and where he said in John chapter 10, now we go to the New Testament, because David is a shepherd of God's people this way. He was a shepherd of sheep, shepherd of God's people as a king. Jesus is a whole other level, because we read this with Jesus, where he says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling who he was not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling. He doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, that they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's the church of Jesus Christ tonight, by the way. We might see 15,000 denominations literally on planet Earth with all the idiosyncrasies of humanity expressed in these denominations and 24 time zones and six continents, people living on them. But in the end, when the Lord looks down, he sees redeemed souls. He knows of the 8 billion people on this planet, we're all identified by one thing and one thing only, born again or not, born of the Spirit or not. Daughter of the king or not, son of the king or not, saved or perishing, justified or condemned, light or darkness, heaven or hell. It's one or the other. And as God looks down on planet Earth right now, this night, he knows his sheep and they know him and we know his voice, which is the most important voice. And he laid down his life for the sheep. He says in verse 17, my father loves me, uh, my father Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I receive from my father. Then he would say later on in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that wonderful words of Jesus right there? Our good shepherd. I mean, there's so many titles for Jesus. Ladies, you know that as you study the names of Jesus and things of Jesus. There's just so many titles for Jesus. But Good Shepherd is definitely an awesome one. As our great high priest, we have access always to the Father in time of need to cast our cares upon him. But the Good Shepherd is the idea of just being so comforted. And as a Good Shepherd, when he taught the Gospel of Luke with the parable of the lost sheep, what does a Good Shepherd do? The shepherd goes after the missing sheep. Oh, the Lord's sovereignty and hand of favor and blessing upon our life knows no, it knows no bounds. How good the Lord is to all of us. How he's gone after us when we're off track and stuck in the, the bob wire or something or stuck in the mud. Like he knows his sheep and he's for us. See, David learned the lessons of being a shepherd, taking care of his dad's sheep. Then he understood how that applied as a leader of the nation of Israel as their first great king the king by which all other kings are compared to. But Jesus, as the good shepherd, 
isn't just the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and speaks to us and guides us and leads us, but we've been told he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the shepherd, and he's the Lamb that's sacrificed. What a marvelous mystery that all is to us tonight. But this much we can say in summarizing the idea that Jesus was the shepherd of God's people, that David was the shepherd of God's people as our king, and Jesus is the shepherd of his people in time, space, and matter through his church, is that he laid down his life for us, he's for us, he leads us, he guides us, he protects us, he's got our back, and he's going to always take care of us. Worship generation body Christ, we can know always, on the best day and the worst day and anything that life brings us in between, that Jesus is our good shepherd, and he's watching over us, and he's got our back. And ultimately, when we step into eternity, he's coming for us. Because, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. And he will come for us. It's a very comforting word. David, yeah, you're awesome taking care of the sheep as a teenager. You're amazing as a king of Israel. But our king, who's the king of kings, is more amazing because he's the, the good shepherd laid down his life for a sheep. Body of Christ, WG, always trust in Jesus. He's the faithful shepherd. Verse 9, excuse me, verse 4, we pick it up with Joab. We read this. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is, in, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus, they're Canaanites, they said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be captain and chief. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went out first and became chief. That's David's nephew through his half-sister. Then David dwelt in the stronghold, and therefore they called, the city, they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from Milo to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went out and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Joab is such an interesting guy to study and look at. I have my old Schofield study Bible from years ago, and you can look up any name, and then it chronologically says their name and what's associated with them. And I was going through that today. Like, Joab was just like it's, like, it's like his whole resume of his life. The chronology and the resume of his life is like, a really good thing, a really good thing. Wow, a really bad thing. A good thing, a good thing. Wow, that's a really bad thing. But like, he was David's main enforcer, if you will. But we'll see as we read on in this chapter, he's not one of the mighty men. He was a great warrior, but he was struck down by Solomon for aligning himself with Ajanah in treason. So he ultimately died at the altar of the Lord in his old age on the wrong side, uh, picking the wrong side of things and not honoring what God had for Solomon to be the king. In this story, So these are Canaanites, and they're right there in the middle of the promised land. And David's like, hey, that's where we're going to set up the kingdom. That's where it's going to be. Whoever gets it done, so that's incentive at work, right? Like, hey, whoever gets his job, gets his account, they get the bonus. And David's like, whoever takes it, you're the boss. You get it on. Joab's kind of guy like, hey, Joab's a lead follower, get out of the way kind of guy, right? He just, he just got it. Like, he went right after it. He was not accepting no. He took action, got it done. In fact, not only did he get it done, then he renovated everything because it says he renovated the whole area. He redesigned it. And then he gave it to David. What's so fascinating about these few chapters, in case you missed the magnitude of it, right now, until the Lord comes back, this piece of acreage is the center of planet Earth. Jerusalem is really the capital of the universe. 
because planet Earth is the center of the universe, because planet Earth is where Jesus came and shed his blood to die for our sins. The sin of our father Adam is a sin that affects the entire universe with the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics that has everything in decay. So even as the universe is expanding, it's dying at the same time. The whole universe with trillions of galaxies, they're all affected by what happened here on planet Earth with the fall of Adam in the Fertile Crescent, probably in modern Iraq. And what happened on planet Earth where Abraham as a type offered up Isaac at Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is, and where 2,000 years later, or 1,000 years later, David comes with Joab as the enforcer, takes that land, establishes the city of the king, city of David, and then a thousand years later, Jesus comes in the city to make his triumphant entry as the king of Israel. And we're told when he returns to establish his kingdom, we'll split the Mount of Olives just a few miles from the center city of David. Do you realize the entire universe is revolved around the city of Jerusalem? I mean, this is, that's where it all goes. I mean, all roads lead to Jerusalem. When the king comes, it's Jerusalem. And this is when Jerusalem became the capital of the king. Joab, 3,000 years ago, he got it done. It would have just been better if he got it done and had a happy ending, though, right? Like, think this through. Because we said talk is cheap. Action always speaks louder than words. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Show me what you've done. He got stuff done. And he talked, he's kind of like Saul. Saul would mention the Lord, but you never saw the fruit of the Lord in Saul's life. Joab's kind of like that. He'd talk about the Lord, but you never really like kind of saw the fruit of the Lord. These kind of guys are a mystery to me, but I'll say this. He got it done, and what he got done is still established 3,000 years later for the nation of Israel. I would just refer, and I do seek a much happier ending than his. Still, though, that's how it became the city of David, and it's an interesting story, and it's there for a reason. Now, verse 10, we read on, and now we get the mighty men of David for the rest of the night. Verse 10. Now, these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who had strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Jashobim, the son of Ahakamite, chief of his of the captains, he had lifted up his spear against 300 killed by him at one time. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pasadamon. Now, that, that's where the Philistines were gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley. So the people fled from the Philistines, but they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, parenthetically, I want to say something between 14 and 15 is there's a third guy in this first group named Shammah. He was the third, and he's mentioned in the, the record in 2 Samuel, but not here. And this is only important because the numbers, because I was talking about how Saturday night, how numbers, God has numbers, and his numbers have meaning, 7 days, 12, 40, the number of testing. I bring that up because this first group is the first group of three. And in this list, it only listed two. But in the more complete Second Samuel list, it lists three, and Shammah is the third guy on that list. Now, verse 15, we pick it up. Now, three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock of David in the cave of Abdullam and the valley of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. 
David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines, that their military gathering, was then in Bethlehem. And David said, because David's from Bethlehem, with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three, they broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was there by the gate, took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who've put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These three, excuse me, these things were done by the three men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He had lifted up a spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Of the three, he was more honorable than the other two. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehudiah, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed the lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, a man great height of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. That's some pretty serious hand-to-hand combat. These things Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, did, and won a name among the three mighty men. Indeed, he was more honorable than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. So we get a few names here in this first group. There's four clusters. There's the original three, Joshabim, Eleazar, and Shammah from 2 Samuel. Then there's the three without name that go get the water from Bethlehem. Then there's Abishai, the brother of Joab, with two others not named, uh, but he's more honorable, so he's the chief of those three. Then there's Benaiah, who is named also the chief of three, and he's in charge of David's guard. So that's four groups of three. That's 12. You think about Israel, what, 12 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles with Jesus. In the description of David's mighty men, which is more than 30 in this list, it's 30 plus some. The first group, they're all like sequential, three, 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 and three. And it seems to be that they had an order. And even within each group of three, there's a primary one, like a triumph, in that three that is the key one. David was very organized in how his mighty men were. And at this time, when he, when he came to the, the king, kingdom, when he became the king, the city of David, his men were all established, and this is how they functioned, and this is who they were. It's very orderly. And then again, we get these other names we'll get to to close out the chapter in a moment. But I want to draw your attention to verse 10, which is a key verse to David's mighty men. It says, These were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. Who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom. Now we know of the original story of the cave of Abdullam, that when David was fleeing for his life from Saul, that these men came by the hundreds. And we're told that there were men that were in debt, in distress, and discontented. By the way, that's not a fun group to go on a retreat with. In debt, in distress, and discontented. Discontented would imply like you're going to be complaining. You're not happy. You're discontent. You're not happy. Distress is a crisis. And in debt, 
you know, you can't get anything done if everyone's in debt. Like, you're all, you're all upside down. Like, if everyone's filing bankruptcy, you really got trouble, right? So they're in debt, in distress, and discontented. But these men came to David. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not who we are when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's who we become after that. You see, so David being a type of Jesus, it's not so much who these men were when they came to Jesus, it, or women, we would say, but who they became after they went forward from Jesus. It's like the Harvest Crusade with Greg Laurie. It's not who you are when you came to the stadium. It's who you are when you leave the stadium and what kind of person you'll become tomorrow when you go out with today's faith. It's not about the environment. When you study the most successful people in American history, it is, especially economically, it's, it's never about their environment or their education. It's about who they chose to become with their lives. And if people do that for money, how much more should we do it for Jesus Christ? If they, don't, if they refuse to accept excuses for finances, we even more so should not accept excuses with Jesus Christ as our king and our glory being so much higher and incomparable for what we're going to. It's not about who we were on the day our life became ownership under Christ Jesus. It's about who we let him become, who we, let, who we become when we let him work in our life. David... An earthly king took hundreds of men who were in debt, distressed, and discontented. And he built this kingdom with these men. So how do these men go from being in debt, in distress, discontented, to becoming mighty men like this? Great leaders, servant leaders. Every administration, we just went through all those kings in First and Second Kings. Every administration that ever happened for the next 400 years is compared to this one. They're all compared to this one. These men and their character and their greatness were birthed out of trials, fiery trials, testings. When the Malachites took the wives and the kids and the booty from, you know, off to Ziglag, it was just, it was like they were ready to kill David. These men with David went through so much together with their wives and their families, and they became so mighty, they're recorded for us in the Bible as just an incredible testimony to us to learn from. But the key to their great success was what voice they let influence them, which is always the key to our successes and failures. We are the product of the environment of what we let come into our mind. That's why we're told to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. You know, every thought, listen, this is really important. I think we underestimate this verse, and it's consistent with the scriptures. Every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is to be taken captive to the Lord. Because if we're exalting Christ on the cross, his resurrection, his promises, his ascension, his position at the right hand of the Father, and his return, we are victors. And we operate from faith. We're coming from victory in faith. We're the promises and we're the head, not the tail, for the kingdom, for all eternity. So if we're being persecuted, Tribulation, trials, martyrdom, or prosperity in a temporal sense, whatever. It's all working for good for eternity in the glory. That's why you must take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Because if we take every thought captive to Christ, he'll be enthroned not only in our mind, but in our hearts. And our obedience and our allegiance will keep a proper perspective on everything happening in our life. When we study great men and women, uh, like Sabina uh, Wormbrandt, you know, you ladies saw the movie together, and 
just reading anything she writes, it's always just super filled with faith and optimism and confidence in the Lord. That woman went through hell and back. Her testimony is incredible. But all she saw was good. If you wake up with Christ enthroned, you'll see the good and you'll move from victory toward victory to glory. But if you want to wake up and think about everything that's wrong and think about everything that's wrong, then that's what you're going to move toward. Who we let influence us is key to what kind of life we'll hold and people of faith. You're going to be moved toward faith and upward moving in Christ. If they're ungodly people, they're going to bring you down. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We're told in Psalm 1, David said, Blessed is the man or woman who delights himself in the law of the Lord. For in it they what? They meditate day and night. Their, their word is transforming them. It's cleansing them. It's renewing them. They see everything through the promises of God and the word of God. And they surround themselves with the word of God and everything's filtered by the word of God. The greatest influence we have on our life is the word of God on our thoughts, our words, our actions, and responses. Because God is true no matter what men do. But if we go through the course of our day and that's not what's shaping our thinking, that's not the primary influence in our life. And people who feed that, whether it's K-Wave or worship music or positive things of the kingdom of God, but if we let the people at work of unbelief the people are just filled with toxins in their life. If we let them influence us, or the newscasters, or everything is essentially designed to be negative to get a response from you, no matter what your worldview is, you're going to be moved toward fear, and you're going to be moved toward anxiety, and you're going to become more the victim than the victor. That's how it's going to work. And those thoughts will overrun the victory that we have in Christ. And you'll be worried about who is in charge of this and who's running that, and you'll go from big God, little problem, to little God, big problem. And these men were mighty. They came in debt, in distress, and discontented. But when they sat at the feet of David, a type of Christ, they began to be men of faith, men of courage, men of valor, men of confidence, capable men. It's not who they were when they showed up at the cave that mattered. It's who they became when they hung out with the man of faith, King David, the man who saw God as his shepherd and saw all of his people as being sheep as well, the man whose words influenced us all as we read the Psalms, as we sing songs from the Psalms, as we think about his life, there are just volumes of books written on the life of David. Spurgeon did a three-volume set, Charles Spurgeon, on the life of David. See, his influence was godly, and he elevated them. His influence was godly to elevate them. And we want to make sure that we're filling our minds with the people and the voices and the lives and the testimonies of people who build us up in the faith that make us look to Jesus and make us more like Jesus and want to be with Jesus. One of the biggest challenges of being in ministry for 35 years is watching people fill their mind with garbage and unbelief and things that hinder every good thing of the Lord, and then they come to church and bring it to church, and they have problems with the Lord and blame it on the Lord. You're here to receive the word and be built up in the word and know that if someone says demons are watching over you, let me tell you, so are angels. And I prefer to focus on the angels, don't you? I remember being at Big Calvary one Sunday morning after third service where it all would get kind of funny up front. And this guy I'd never seen before because you get your regulars. And he's like, can you pray with me? I'm like, oh, sure, yeah, I'll pray with you. And he's like, and he starts rebuking the devil and the devil this and the devil that. And I, said, I stopped him. I literally stopped him. I'm like, Dude, what are you doing? We just worshiped Jesus for 20 minutes. Pastor Chuck just taught a Bible study, and you're focused on the devil? See, if that's what you want to focus on, that's what you're going to see. Not that he's not real, he is real. But the best defense is a great offense in any sport. 
and Jesus is our victor. And I'll teach you about the devil when he comes up in the text. Otherwise, I don't have time for it. I'm looking into Jesus, the author and fisher of my faith, not the devil, the one trying to destroy it. I know he's a roaring lion, but I know we have a great victor. And we're told to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We know the lion's there, but we look to Jesus. And these mighty men strengthen themselves, and they strengthen their calling, and they strengthen the kingdom, and the ladies that gather around the Lord, and the men that gather around the Lord, the men that gather for donuts on Saturday morning, the women that gather, you know, for everything that you do on Saturday morning. When the body of Christ gathers together and we strengthen ourselves under the king, looking to the king, and we focus on the king, man, we go out victorious and we function in victory. And we fill our minds with the things that build up the most holy faith. You just read through the New Testament. It's all about building up your mind and your heart and your life with the promises and the truth and letting it transform us from glory to glory. And to the extent that you choose to do it, you'll be the sum total of it in your life. Our lives are the sum total of our choices and the things that influence us. And most of us are the sum total of the five things that influence us the most. And I can tell who's influenced by the Lord and godly influences. And I'm telling you, I can tell you who's not by what comes out of your mouth. For the abundance of a heart does a woman speak or a man speak, and your words will always reveal who's influencing you. We want to hear you speak in truth and life and the confidence of the king and going forward. I think so many people, when they get to glory, who are going to glory, are going to feel remorse, myself included, for wasted time, and just feel folly for the foolish things that we let distract us, stumble us, and keep us from a greater purpose in this life, this journey that we call abundant life, joyful life, and eternal life that we're living right now in Jesus' name. These mighty men, they became mighty because they strengthened themselves in the king who had faith, and we become mighty when we strengthen ourselves in the king who gives us faith and honors our faith. Man, they, it says that they, they strengthen themselves with him in his kingdom. That's what we're called to do, body of Christ, is to strengthen ourselves in Jesus and his kingdom and everything consistent with it Anything that's inconsistent with it, we're told to take it captive and obedient to Christ and give it no business in our life. That's how you can live an abundant life. What you focus on, we're focusing on the king. Now we pick up in verse 26 and wrap it up with these mighty warriors and their names. Now these guys are all part of the team too. They just don't quite have the same significance as the other ones. Also, the mighty warriors were Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shamath the Hararite, Halez the Pelionite, Ira the son of Ekesh the Tekite, Abazur the Anathite, Sibikai the Hushathite, Eliah the Ahathite, Mari the Nethophite, Helad the son of Bena the Nephilite, Ithiah the son of Rebbei of Gibeah, of the sons of Benjamin, Beniah the Pirithonite, Hurai of the brooks of Gosh, Abiel, Arbathite, Asmabeth, the Bethramite, Eliabah, the Shobanite, the sons of Hashem, the Gizinite, Jonathan, the son of Shagah, the Harite, Ahim, the son of Sakar, the Harite, Eliphal, the son of Ur, Hefer, the Merkarite, Ahijah, the Pelionite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Narai, the son of Ezbi, Joel, the brother of Nathan, Midhar, the son of Hagrai, Zelek, the Ammonite, Nahari, the Berathite, the armor bearer of Joab, of Zerah, Ir, the Ithraelite, Gareb, the Ithraelite, 
Uriah the Hittite, of course, that's who David had killed, Zabdad, the son of Ahalai, Adoniah, the son of Shizai, the Reubenite, the chief of the Reubenites, and 30 with him, Hanan, the son of Makkah, Jehoshaphat, the Mithenite, Uziah, the Ashrathite, Shammah and Jeel, the sons of Hotham and Arite, Jadel, the son of Shimri, Joah, the brother, the Tizite, Eliel, the Mahabite, Jerobai and Jeshaviah, the sons of Elnam, Ithma, the Moabite, Elah, Obed, Jeel, and Mezrobate. So those are those names. And unlike a lot of names we've seen so far, just leave on this good note here. We get a lot of names, whether they're good or bad, so far in Chronicles, and some are bad. These guys are all good. Like, these are good guys. See, they aren't just here because, like, hey, these are, we're Uncle Ernie's first cousin or something. They're here because they're mighty men, and they let God work in their life. And I would point out that you have Ammonites and Moabites in that mix. These weren't Israelites, but they became mighty men with David. So, again, it's not where you come from, but who you become when you hang out with the king.